Al Jazeera podcast. There's no one here. Some of the southeast people used to live here, but there's no sign of them anymore. I still remember the gatherings we had on that beach when I was a child. Clans came from all over to feast together on oysters and roasted kangaroo. Now, as a young woman, I knew what this empty beach meant. Any of my people who lived there were either already captured or dead. When I died, they called me the last Tasmanian Aboriginal. They said I lived a tragic life. The thing is, neither of those things are true. Here's my truth. I survived an apocalypse. How many people can say that? Move over, husband. Make room. We've got to keep searching for our people. Right now, in 1831, she is travelling with a group of Aboriginal people, led by a British colonial official. Mr Robinson promised me that soon we will all be together, living the way we always have, and no one will bother us anymore. I thought we were on a mission to save my people from the Black War and live under Robinson's protection. The Black War, one of the most intense conflicts in Australian history, lasted between 1824 and 1831 and led to the near destruction of all Aboriginal people of Tasmania. Of all of those who survived, none have a story quite like Truganini. If only I knew then what I know now. Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, here's your chance. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. In this episode, we meet Truganini, an Aboriginal woman whose lifetime coincided with the end of her people's way of life on their ancestral land the modern-day island state of Tasmania, off the southern coast of Australia. Some say she sold out her people, but in hindsight, Truganini's survival allowed future generations to learn about the near annihilation of the Aboriginal people of Tasmania. Hindsight, you've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. I was born in 1812, in a little piece of paradise, tucked away in a remote part of the world, an island within an island, Lunawana Alana, or Bruni Island, as the British named it, southeast of Lutruwita, or Tasmania as you may know it, off the southern coast of Australia though it wasn't yet part of it at that time. My parents named me after a plant, Truganini, 
was what our people called grey saltbush. A tough native plant which can withstand drought, wind and poor conditions. Names can be self-fulfilling prophecies. I lived with my father, my mother and my two sisters. My father, Mangana, was the leader of the New Noni clan, one of the clans that made up the southeast tribe of the Aboriginal people of Tasmania. We lived a nomadic life, you could say, moving with the seasons to find food around our little island, as did our ancestors for tens of thousands of years. My mother taught me to swim and dive from a very young age. A new nonny woman had to be an excellent swimmer. It was us who caught shellfish and oysters for the whole clan to eat, and even seals and whales, while the men hunted, harvested and managed the land. I loved it. And I was good at it. We had many special traditions. The women wove baskets and made shell necklaces. The men painted their bodies with red ochre and charcoal. In the evenings, we gathered around the fire, danced and sang our traditional songs. Life was simple, but it wasn't without trouble. Europeans first arrived in the waters around Tasmania in 1642. They kept their distance for more than 160 years, until the British took real notice of the island's natural resources and its seal and whale populations. Around 7,000 Aboriginal people lived there too, but the British reckoned there was still plenty of room for their own seal and whale hunters and a penal colony. By the time Truganini was born, her people were living in the same vicinity of several hundred, mostly male, often violent, white strangers. Twice a year, our clan rowed our canoes down the Diontre Castos Channel to visit the main island of Tasmania. The clans of Tasmania were all part of the same language group tied together by family connections. Though each clan primarily lived in one area of the land, they enjoyed the freedom to move around and were welcomed wherever they went. But on one of our trips, when I was around four, my life irrevocably changed. As we sat by the fire one night, we saw shadows coming our way from the beach. A group of white sailors landed on the shore and tried to kidnap my mother. No, please, no! Leave my mother! She resisted, so they stabbed her, leaving her to bleed to death. This may have been Truganini's first direct encounter with colonial violence. It certainly wasn't her last. In the years that followed, Toganini became only too familiar with the sight of white men landing on the island, bringing mayhem with them. Escaped convicts hid in the bushes and attacked Aboriginal people for sport, 
foreign sealers and whalers kidnapped and abused women for labor and sex. My older sisters were kidnapped by sealers when I was 14. Father, please, do something, please. I never saw them again. Truganini was still a girl when Britain launched a settlement campaign to attract free settlers, rather than just convicts, to Tasmania. With offers of free land, Waves of British settlers arrived on Tasmania's main island. By the time she turned 16 in 1828, the white population of Tasmania surged from several hundred to more than 18,000. Settlers diminished the livestock and wiped out the seal colonies that had sustained the Nyononi people for millennia. The British also introduced the Aboriginal people to new goods, flour, tea and sugar. Try this. Hot black water? No. <laughs> it's tea. Just try it. Here, put some sugar in it. Oh, it's sweet. With the traditional foodstocks dwindling, this led to an exploitive transactional dynamic. Some Aboriginal women exchanged their bodies for tea and sugar. I feared that if I continued to stay or rely on my father, I would have either starved, been kidnapped like my sisters, or killed like my mother. I had to find another way to survive. I started to spend more time at the white man's camps. I learned the value of my womanhood in this new world. Hey, you don't have to pull me. Just give me some tea, sugar and flour and I will come. Recognising they were being invaded, Aboriginal people fought back, igniting what was later called the Black War. The Aboriginal people attacked in daylight with wooden spears, and the British settlers attacked at night in roving parties of civilians and soldiers with guns. In 1828, amid settlers' panic, George Arthur, the British governor of Tasmania, proclaimed martial law. That gave settlers a license to shoot us on sight. There weren't any settlers yet on Bruni Island, so we weren't as affected as the main island. While the Black Ball raged on in the main island of Tasmania, the governor had other plans for Bruni Island and appointed a British Christian missionary to carry them out. The missionary believed he was fulfilling God's will but the consequences were devastating for Truganini and her people. I first met Robinson in 1829, when I was about 16 or 17. I was living with a gang of convict woodcutters just across the channel from Bruni Island. They protected me and gave me food. George Augustus Robinson was a British settler from London hoping to improve his social status. Selling himself as a champion of both Christianity and white supremacy, he struck a deal with the British governor. For a handsome salary and a generous land grant, he agreed to become the custodian of the Aboriginal people. Robinson named the waterfront of his acquired land on Bruni Island Missionary Bay. He envisioned a community of converted Aboriginal people 
living under Christian values and British customs. Of course, he told none of that to Truganini when they met. Come here, young lady. What's your name? Don't be scared. My name is Truganini. Why? Are you a British soldier? <laughs> You're a smart girl. Beautiful, too. I'll call you Lala Rook. He said it was the name of some oriental beauty he read about in a poem. I didn't think my name needed changing, and it's not like it's hard to pronounce. Truganini. Surely he could pronounce it, if he tried. No, I'm not a soldier. I'm here to help you and your people. I promise. Robinson was kind to Truganini, but in hindsight, beware of the wolf in sheep's clothing. He was the first white man who didn't try to take advantage of me or hurt me. I wanted to believe he was different. I wanted to believe there was a reality where I could survive with my people instead of convicts. I wanted to believe that someone was looking out for our best interests. Father, we can't stay here. There's not enough food, and we can't go to the main island either. People are fleeing from there. Soldiers and settlers are killing them, Father. In 1829, there weren't a lot of options. Stay on our little island and starve to death? Or move to the main island where people were being killed every day by the British? Or join Robinson to Missionary Bay. He promised me protection from settlers or soldiers and that my people and I could keep our way of life and traditions. Yes, we would have to move to Northern Bruni, but it was the best of a bad situation. Well, Mr Robinson, once we've crossed this narrow passage between the channel and the sea, we'll be in North Bruni. As Truganini and her clan walked along the little arm of sand, there was a palpable sense of change in the air. She didn't know it then, but this was the first journey of many with Robinson, and the first of many false promises. More after this break. Welcome back. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can receive forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And I invite you to open your heart and accept him as your Lord and Saviour. Things shifted when we arrived at Missionary Bay. Robinson wanted to turn us into Christians. He said that God sent him to save us. He also wanted us to wear clothes and to labour for our food. But that wasn't us. We wore very little if anything at all. We ate what we hunted and grew. We sang and danced. A man who claimed to be relocating them for their protection and to preserve their way of life was certainly making a hard sell for an alternate lifestyle. Still, Truganini went along with it, hoping he would deliver on his promise and protect her and her people. Some people from my clan and other clans joined us after feeling the war on the main island. 
One of them was Dre, a girl of the Ninene people, a clan from the southwest. I knew her from our travels to the main island. Wuradi joined us soon after. He was a prominent man of our clan, a warrior and a traditional healer. I didn't know him very well. He was much older than me, but I knew he was a good man and my father trusted him. Life on Missionary Bay wasn't what I thought it would be, but at least we were alive. Until people started getting sick one after the other. Influenza struck in September 1829. By October, only a handful of people survived at Missionary Bay, including Truganini and Dre. Truganini's father was inches from death, and Muradi was the only healthy man left. Recognizing Muradi's strength, Robinson saw in him a crucial ally, but Wuradi made it clear that his support depended on Robinson securing one thing, having Truganini as his wife. No, he's 40. I'm only 17. I don't want to marry him. You have to trust me. With you and him on my team, we can save your people. I had no other choice. Robinson was our only hope. If there was something that could help save us, I had to do it. Waradi and I got married in October 1829. Less than two months after she wed, life dealt Troganini another blow. I lost my father. I knew it was a matter of time after he caught influenza because he wasn't getting any better. I had lost my whole family my mother, my sisters, and now my father. Now all I had was Wuradi, Dre, and Robinson. The whole island? As much as we can cover, yes. Mr. Robinson, the main island is much, much bigger than Luana Alana. I guess we can make it, but it will take a long time. Only a few of us were left on Bruni Island. Robinson convinced us we could still save people on the main island and bring them back here to live with us under his protection. He called it the Friendly Mission. I hung on to the hope that we could make a new clan, that I could still live the life I lived as a girl, that we would survive. The group took off in January 1830. Crossing the Diantre-Casto Channel that separated Bruni Island from the main island, as Truccanini did years ago with her family. Only this time, what lay ahead of her was a ten-month round trip of the whole island, and there would be no coming back home. We travelled west across the channel and arrived at Research Bay on the mainland after two days at sea. It's as beautiful as I remember. I had made this trip countless times with my family when I was a child. Now it was bittersweet. The childhood memories were happy ones. 
but it hurt to remember them now. Everything had changed. We walked for six weeks without seeing a soul until we finally found the Ninene people, Dre's clan, in the southwest. The Ninene were not so easy to convince of Robinson's mission. After all, he was a British settler, and this was the main island where the Black War was raging. In the two years preceding, the British had killed more than 135 Aboriginal people. They had grown distrustful. Truganini would have done well to be as sceptical. We were trying to save them. Yes, they would have to abandon their land, but what was the alternative? Stay put till the white settlers came and killed them all? They just wouldn't listen. But at least they let us stay for a few nights. It was the closest thing to a normal life we'd had in a while. Mr. Robinson, come on up and dance with us. No? Well, at least put some ochre on your face. Wiradi, show him how it's done. I thought maybe the Ninene people would change their mind and join us. But they said they were going to stick to their ways. And Dre said she was sticking with them. Dre, wait! Please don't go. I know they're your clan, but you will die out there. We headed north on foot. I found myself alone with all these men on this quest. In June 1830, six months after they first embarked on their mission, having covered more than 500 kilometres, most of it on foot, the group arrived at Cape Grimm in the far northwest of Tasmania. We met a British man living there. He let us set up tents to sleep on his land. <laughs> it was surreal to need permission from white men when only a few years earlier we could go anywhere we wanted. Robinson and the Aboriginal group were at Van Diemen's Land Company, a farming corporation and one of the first companies to open in Tasmania. Tasmania was known as Van Diemen's Land until 1855, the colonial name used by the British during the European exploration of Australia in the 19th century. While we were there, we heard horror stories about how they were killing my people off. Two years earlier, four workers had shot 30 Aboriginal people and threw their bodies off a cliff onto the rocks. Their crime? Killing some of the company's sheep. These people were bragging about killing people like me and all I could do was sit there and listen. I can't walk anymore. I can't. Wuradi, would you carry my things? I can't. We walked more than 900 kilometres through steep ridges and wetlands before we finally reached Launceston, a city in the northeast. What a sight. It looked like an armed camp. In response to the settlers' criticism of his inability to protect them, in September 1830, the British governor called upon every able-bodied male to form the Black Line, a literal human chain of 2,000 men. Their singular goal 
was to push the Aboriginal people onto the Tasman Peninsula, where they would be captured and relocated. As the black line swept southwards, we headed in the opposite direction. Robinson said there were about 50 Aboriginal people in the whole eastern half of the island, and we wanted to get to them before the black line did. I'm so tired. Can we stop? If we stop now, the black line will catch up with us. The black line was a real danger, but it was also used by Robinson as a fear tactic. By keeping them afraid, he kept them under his control. This was key at this point. The British were winning the conflict, and the Aboriginals now numbered in the hundreds instead of the thousands. The question was, what was he going to do with the survivors? He took Truganini and Muradi to Hobart, the state capital of Tasmania, where he planned to negotiate a new deal with the governor. A new home for them. More money for him. Hobart wasn't pleasant. We stayed in Robinson's annex and were confined there the whole time. On the few times we went outside, the settlers were hostile to us. But we were nearly back where we started. Bruni Island was only a short boat ride away. It was so close I could almost smell it. Waradi, come. How long do you think it would take us to reach Bruni? Can't be more than a couple of hours, right? <sighs> Maybe we could ask Robinson to take us home, since we're so close anyway. But there was no home for them anymore, and Robinson knew it. While he led Truganini around Tasmania, the governor moved British settlers in. In Hobart, Robinson convinced the British governor that he should be in charge of all Aboriginal people. He proposed to manage the indigenous population by creating a permanent asylum on an island in the Bass Strait. In March 1831, Truganini, Wuradi, Robinson, and fewer than 60 Aboriginal survivors arrived at Gun Carriage Island in the eastern Bass Strait. Truganini was now more than two days sailing away from Bruni Island, but Robinson was a step closer to his goal. She still had no idea he was gathering all Aboriginal people on an island to evacuate Tasmania for settlers. More after this break. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. As soon as we landed there, people started falling ill and dying. <laughs> Mr. Robinson, please take us away from here. Truganini's wish came true when Robinson announced that they would go on another so-called friendly mission to the northern midlands of the main island, 
in May 1831. Waradi, let's go catch some kangaroos. No, there will be no hunting today. I need everyone to focus on the mission. Robertson wanted us to do nothing but look for people. But we longed to live the life we were used to. By late 1832, the Black War was considered won. The Aboriginal people suffered great losses, either through war or disease. Robinson was named superintendent of the Aboriginal establishment and ordered to move the Aboriginals under his care to Flinders Island, northwest of Tasmania. He was expected to ensure the rest of the original people of Tasmania followed in due course. Life on Flinders Island was even worse. Some clans believed that the islands of the Bass Strait were the lands of the dead, and they may have been right, because as soon as we landed there, people started getting sick again. But I didn't stay long. Robinson rounded me up and the rest of the guides for another mission to mainland Tasmania. We travelled up the west coast and found several clans hidden away. They seemed friendly enough in the beginning, but we soon learned that they were planning to kill Robinson and all his guides, except me. They wanted to keep her for themselves. There weren't many women left on the West Coast because the sealers had abducted nearly all of them. They saw 21-year-old Tuganini as a great prize. They struck at dawn. Mr. Robinson, don't follow me. Go, run, hide in the bush. Lana Rook, save me. Please pull my raft across the river. I can't swim. If I stay, they'll kill me. I had to make a tough decision fast. I could either save Robinson and have my safety tied to him forever, or I could go to the men who wanted me and live freely with them. Mr. Robinson, are you okay? Whether it was out of fear, a sense of duty, or a genuine care, Chaganini ultimately chose Robinson. I wasn't the only one who made that choice. The next day, Waradi and the other guides joined us on the other side of the river. By 1833, Robinson was three years into his so-called friendly missions and getting impatient. All that stood between him and his reward were three clans on the west coast and he was ready to use force to get them. We walked for weeks in the cold. Robinson didn't allow us to make fires because he was afraid the clans would find out we were there and run away. This is the season when the Ninene people go to sea to fish. I'm sure we'll find them soon. And we did. We found them, and I found an old friend. Dre, I missed you. Come with us and don't leave again. Dre led Truganini to the rest of her clan, who were reluctant to join Robinson's mission. He didn't give them a choice. They were all held captive and sent to a penal settlement on Sarah Island on Tasmania's west coast. The place was adequate, but it didn't agree with people. 
illness spread, and all the adults of one clan died. Those who survived were moved to Flinders Island. In the first half of 1833, Robinson rounded up 66 people, and within a year, almost all of them were dead. In early 1835, Robinson reported to the colonial secretary that he cleared the original people from the colony. By then, around 200 Aboriginal survivors in Tasmania were confined to the inhospitable Flinders Island. The destruction of Truganini's people was nearly complete, and she'd played an important part in it. Robinson might have sheltered them from white violence, but he offered no protection from disease. Look, we built those houses while you were gone. Well, yes, Mr. Robinson, but soon there won't be anyone to live in them. In 1839, Robinson was named Chief Protector of Aborigines for Australia's Port Phillip District. And to respond to this duty, he had to travel to Melbourne. Truganini and Wuradi, along with a group of 14 Aboriginals, joined Robinson for his new mission. They didn't know it would be their last. We landed at New Holland. That's Australia for you. Just outside of Melbourne, Robinson took a job there to do for the Kulin Nation, the original people of Port Phillip. <laughs> the same thing he supposedly did for my people protect and civilize them. We didn't have much to do there. We didn't know the land well, so we were of no help to Robinson's new mission. We were left out on our own. I don't know why it took me so long to realize that he wasn't doing all this to protect us, but to gain the title and status of being a protector. He had promised to save us, but instead, people on Flinders Island were dying. I wondered if there would be anyone still alive when we returned. Look, we don't need him. Let's just go. We've survived without him before. We can do it again. So me and a few others ran off. Waradi refused to come, but he didn't stop me either. We left Melbourne and headed south stopping to work for food and shelter at whaling stations along the way. We didn't really have a plan, but I felt free. But Truganini's hope for a peaceful journey was soon shattered. What did you do? Where did you get this gun? The two men of our group shot two British whalers. We were on the run for six weeks until we got caught. In November 1841, Truganini and her companions were arrested and taken to Melbourne in chains. They were put on trial right away. The law was not in their favour. Robinson attended every day, and during his testimony, he insisted that the three women, including Truganini, could not have acted according to their own will. Whether he believed that is up for debate. Perhaps he was trying to atone for his sins. The jury pronounced the three women not guilty. The two men were sentenced and publicly hanged on January 20, 1842. The women were discharged into Robinson's care 
and sent back to Flinders Island. I think that was the last time I ever saw Robinson. In my 12 years as his guide, I felt protected, almost privileged, as part of his close entourage. It had spared me the harsh fate of the people I helped him round up and send to uninhabitable diseased islands. But now he returned to Port Phillip to live his life as a protector, while I sailed off to Flinders Island, where people were sent to die. It was naive of me to think he would always have my back, but I couldn't shake off the feeling of betrayal. For the first time in a long time, I had no protection and no idea what lay ahead. Muradi, wake up. We're almost there. Come on, old man. Muradi, wake up. Muradi! Muradi died on our way to Flinders Island. We had been married for 12 years. He was the last man of our clan, the closest thing I had or would ever have to a family since I didn't have any children. I wanted to honour him. I wanted to cremate him, as was our tradition. But I wasn't allowed. Instead, they buried him. Now the island was scattered with farms and towns bearing British names, like Westbury, Brighton and Arthur River. In 1842, the first Tasmanian census recorded a population of 57,420. That number included white settlers, Aboriginal women who had assimilated into the settler society, and their children. The original Aboriginal population was almost wiped out, with only a few surviving far away. Flinders Island was as bad as I remembered it. The only good thing was that I was reunited with Dre. We stayed there for five years till the Flinders Island establishment was closed. Once again, we had to be moved. In October 1847, 47 Aboriginal survivors on Flinders Island sailed across the channel from Bruny Island to Oyster Cove Probation. There... Truganini was able to revive some of her new Noni traditions. We were expected to dress and live like settlers. I wore a petticoat and a sack dress they gave me, but also one of my own shell necklaces. I had my own hut with a fireplace, a cooking pot, plates and utensils. I had a bed, but I always preferred to sleep on the earth in front of the fire. I don't think I ever slept on that bed. <laughs> I loved being by the water. I went out to the rocky point at the end of the cove to dive for oysters and scallops. But the best thing about Oyster Cove was that I could visit home from there. Mr. Dandridge, the supervisor of the station, 
taught himself to row, so he would take me and Dre across the channel to Bruny Island. I still knew every inch of it. Of course, by then, settlers who arrived when I called this place home were still there. They'd give me sugar and tea, like the old days. I'd accept it. They were nice enough. But I couldn't help but wonder how different my life would have turned out if they had never landed here. But what good was wondering now? In 1861, 14 years after we were sent here, my best friend Dre died. With her gone, I felt the loneliest I had ever felt in my life. And as the winter wore on, the place seemed to empty out around me. By 1862, only a handful of people who moved there 15 years earlier remained at Oyster Cove. The rest had died of disease and neglect. The fast decline of the Aboriginal people sent the white scientific community into a frenzy. They wanted to collect memorabilia of a people they pushed to near extinction. Mr. Dandridge, promise me, when I die, you will not let them take my body. I know they will want to. Please don't let them. Bury me in the deepest part of the channel. By 1872, Toganini was the only resident left in Oyster Cove. Dandridge took her home to his wife in Hobart. She moved in two years later. In her final years, Toganini, who was in her early 60s, became a curiosity in Hobart. People came from far and wide to take her photograph or exploit the status they assigned to her as the last Tasmanian. Old and frail, she needed constant medical attention from Mrs. Dandridge. I knew my time was near. I longed to be reunited with my family. I waited for a message from my father to know when it was time. Any minute now. Father will call out for me any minute now. On May 4, 1876, Mrs. Dandridge left her lying on the floor of her room in front of a roaring fire. Suddenly, Truganini called out to her. By the time Mrs. Dandridge reached her, Truganini had lapsed into a coma. Three days later, at the age of 64, Truganini was dead. Truganini feared her body would be examined after death, as she was, at the time, widely regarded by Europeans as the last Aboriginal Tasmanian. She was buried secretly at an old female prison. The Royal Society of Tasmania, a scientific organization dedicated to promoting scientific research and knowledge, campaigned to get hold of Truganini's skeleton. They secured it in December 1878. In 1904, they put her remains on public display in the Tasmanian Museum in Hobart, where they remained until 1947. 
It took a century for Truganini's dying wish to be granted. In 1976, the trustees of the museum allowed her remains to be cremated and her ashes scattered in the water around her homeland. The Entre Casto channel that separates Bruni Island from the Tasmanian mainland. Truganini might have been the last survivor of the original clans of Tasmania, but the notion that the race is extinct is both false and problematic. Today, there is an active Tasmanian Aboriginal community working to revive their culture. In late 2023, Australia, Tasmania included, will vote in a referendum to recognize Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution through representation in Parliament. Almost two centuries since Robinson embarked on his first mission, and a century and a half since Truganini's death, reconciliation with the original people of Tasmania is yet to be accomplished. Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. This series was produced by Sout Podcasts. And their team is managing producer Tala Alisa, editor Morgan Waters, director, producer, and editor Tala Halawa, assistant producer Basant Samhut, associate producer Kaula Alhamuri, sound design by Nuruddin Belahsen. Assembly Sound Editing by Yazan Kawas. This episode is written by Summer Nazif. Research by Jawan Bustani. Fact-checking by Tarak Ayub. Special thanks to Cassandra Pibus, author of Truganini, Journey Through the Apocalypse, for giving us an interview. Truganini is played by Nora Lili Bagiri. Young Truganini, played by Periota Mauema Italia Bagiri. Extra male voices, played by Stephen Brunton. Recording by 5A Studios. Additional fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Stephanie Chung and Lynn Enwin. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Asil Mansour is the manager of digital content strategy. Juan Carlos Van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.